You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. From Vineyard Theatre in New York City, this is Theatre Uncorked. Where vineyard artists come together to talk about the process of bringing new works to the stage. I'm your host, Eric Pargach. For episode two, we welcome Pulitzer Prize winning playwright Paula Vogel in conversation with director Rebecca Tashman. In 1906, Sholem Ash wrote The God of Vengeance, a little play written in Yiddish that would go on to cause a sensation. The play, set in a brothel and featuring a lesbian love affair, became a hit throughout Europe and worked its way to the U.S. where it was translated into English. Scandal gripped the play during its Broadway premiere in 1923 when the entire cast was arrested and prosecuted on obscenity charges. The play and the trial surrounding those arrests ignited a passion in director Rebecca Tashman. That passion would lead her to Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Paula Vogel. The two would go on to co-create Indecent, a play about the play up to and beyond its besieged Broadway premiere. With Rebecca as director and Paula as playwright, Indecent would travel from Yale Repertory Theater to La Jolla Playhouse and make its New York premiere here at the Vineyard, maintaining the same troupe of actors and creative team throughout. Rebecca has an impressive body of work as a director, including acclaimed world premiere productions for such playwrights as Denai Guerrera, David Adjmi, and Sarah Rule. Her work has earned her a TCG New Generations grant, a Drama League Directing Fellowship, and the Henry Crown Fellowship. She is making her debut here at the Vineyard with Indecent. Paula has a long history with the Vineyard, going back to 1997 when How I Learned to Drive made its world premiere here and went on to win the Pulitzer Prize. In 2003, her play The Long Christmas Ride Home premiered here, and in 2008, the Vineyard created an award in her name. The Paula Vogel Playwriting Award is granted to early career playwrights, providing them with resources to develop new work while in residence at the Vineyard. We are thrilled the two joined us to chat during previews of Indecent, which went on to open to unanimous rave reviews and become a critic's pick in the New York Times. This is Paula Vogel and Rebecca Tashman in Theater Uncorked at the Vineyard. How did we meet? Do you remember how we met? <laughs> well, I know that I was a fan, have been a fan of Paula's for my life. And I remember seeing how I learned to drive here at the vineyard and being, I don't have the language for it, bowled over and profoundly moved. And then I remember beginning a process of stalking that started about, I think maybe I was bold enough to begin the process of stalking about 12 years ago through Sarah Rule, who I asked to, I think this is maybe how we met. I, but I asked her to see if she could connect us. I think it was through Sarah. I, well, I knew of you when you did your thesis play. Right. And I thought, God, I wish I could get down to see that. And so I followed your Yale production. I followed the conference. And I thought, oh, this is really, this is a really interesting wom- woman, really interesting director. I think I knew about Split Bridges. Oh really? Yeah, I do. Um, so I thought, oh, this is really this is really interesting. And then hmm. 
that hussy Sarah Rule started working with you. <laughs> and I started thinking, my God, why is Sarah Rule working with Rebecca Tashman and I don't get to work with Rebecca Tashman? So I started quizzing Sarah. And Sarah said, you really should work with Rebecca. You really should get to know each other. The moment that I really remember was probably later than we first met. Yeah. Because what I remembered was going and seeing... Orlando. I also mm-hmm. saw your David Adjmi. Evildoers. The evildoers at Yale. And I remember this moment when Joanna Day came out on stage that I was so terrified in my seat. It was one of those responses that you always wonder, how can you make me scared in a theater? And I remember sitting in the Yale audience thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to wet the seat. (laughs) And then the second thought was, I have to work with this woman. (laughs) I mean, that was the moment that I went, I have to work with you. So then I came to see Orlando. Right, which, but by then we knew each other. We knew each other. But Orlando was a huge kind of bonding moment where Mm -hmm. I feel like we were starting to circle around each other. (laughs) And I have to say, Orlando, because I, you know, I had read the play, the first draft. And this is the other thing that I think is kind of an extraordinary perspective. You have directed plays where I've read the first draft, and I've loved them on the page, but I thought, how the hell do you do this? Can we say hell in a podcast? <laughs> how the hell, how the F do you do this? <laughs> We're not going to say that in the podcast. Um, and then I, I turn up and I saw your production. And it, that production danced. Orlando. Yeah. yeah. It danced with the script in a really extraordinary way. Nice. I loved it. I loved it. So then I started tracking. Uh, but it took a while, I think, for me to get your attention. Still, nonetheless, I tried to, I was trying so hard to direct your new plays. And also in D.C., other plays. I, I did know that you were interested right, in Long Christmas Ride. Maybe that's when we first connected. Long Christmas Ride, and I had already said yes to another production. Right. I think that might be when. And I was like, damn, because <laughs> you you asked to do it at Woolly? I think at Woolly. And Studio had already right, asked, that's and right. I had said yes. That's right. And I went, you know, I, look, I was happy to be done at and of Studio. Of course, of but, course, of course. I was like, damn. I, I was just the timing of it. Yeah. Well, lucky me to have found you in the world. Me too. So that's how we met. <laughs> and then I was trying to think of who would be a writer, a wonderful writer that would be interested in this collaboration. And the truth is it never would have occurred to me to call you except David Chambers, who was teaching at Yale then, suggested you and I said, there's no way she'd want to do this with me. And he said, just ask, just ask. Yeah, he's absolutely right. Well, we, God, I, you know, ne- I, I would never have been so bold without his suggestion. So it was enormously lucky. Let's talk for a second, because I think people may not realize people versus God of vengeance is really where this started, which was your thesis project, right? Your MFA thesis project. What year was that? 97. Well, it's I started working on it in 97 and then the thesis was in 2000. So tell tell me again, just share what was that brainstorm for and what what was the piece? How did it end up? So, in 97 I was searching for a 1-hour 
one act and happened upon Elisa Solomon's book, who's been very helpful to us on this production. God bless you, um, Elisa. She has. Yes, yeah, she has. Redressing the canon. And it, in it, she mentioned God of Vengeance, which I had never heard of. So I s- found the play and I was left breathless. And then was talking to dramaturg Rebecca Rugg. And in that conversation, we thought, oh, imagine if we found the trial transcript of the obscenity trial. So it opened, for anybody who doesn't know, it opened in 1923 on Broadway and everybody was arrested for obscenity. Uh, And it so happened that where I was at school at Yale, they housed, they had everything. They had the trial transcript. They had Shola Masha's records. They had the attorney who defended the play, Harry Weinberger, his records. So it was sort of three years of falling down this rabbit hole into this memory, this cultural memory that was, you know, on the campus in New Haven in all these papers, these amazing old papers. And then attempting to put together a piece that interwove transcript of the obscenity trial with text of the play. And it was, you could feel or I could feel that it was an important moment in history to remember and that I hadn't done it justice. So it left me hungry, not sated, to keep struggling to figure out how to tell the story. How how do you hold on to passion that long? I don't know. It was it, it, it. It's like how do you, I guess how do you explain any lifelong love affair in a way or obsession? It's like somehow inexplicable. I in a way like I. I guess somehow I felt responsible mm-hmm. to caretake the memory, right? And that I had been privileged and like privy to be inside. I mean, there were such intimate papers in those documents. Right. To be inside that memory, really, it felt like I came to, I think, understand it in a pretty nuanced and intimate way. And it just seemed really important that it not be forgotten. So do you think if, if, when we first had a conversation about it, if I had t- honest answer, if I had asked you if you thought the trial was going to be in our play, what would you have said? Would you have known yet? I think I even said it's more than the trial. Yeah, it's definitely. But did you think the trial was going to be in it? I knew pretty early on that I couldn't make the trial fit. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it was fun. Those drafts <laughs> were fun. <laughs> Um, I certainly gave it, you know, a crack from my point of view. I also think I said yes because it was terrifying. Mm-hmm. There was so much material. It was so fraught with history. It yeah. was such a big and cumbersome project that I thought, you know, I kind of said to myself, Vogel, all right, how the heck are you going to do it? Was one of the things that made me also say yes because I just... Trying to find a shape for it. But somehow, so this is a vague memory. I feel you knew the structure of this play. Fairly early on. Very early. Yeah, fairly early on. Astoundingly early. Well, like, I seem to remember you describing the structure to me, I, even yeah. maybe at McDowell. I did. I did. Well, I, I can, if I can get, not to the end of a piece, but if I can get to an emotional turning point, 
then I can write the rest of the piece. And th- and I knew what yeah, the emotional turning point was. Yeah, you did. So once Amazing. I felt that, I, you know, it's interesting. I do think in terms of structure, but how to get there, how to get to the turning point. And I think people may laugh at this, but we now have what, 42 drafts at of least. this? At least. But I think... Now, this would be interesting if we went back to the first draft. I did. I think the structure the is structure the structure's still there. Actually, the structure's there. And it was there. your very, it was, yeah. you saw that, I think, from the beginning. I did. Yeah. That's I did. Which is just. Astounding to it's, me. No, I think it's the way that, that playwright brains are hmm. trained. I mean, each of us have different DNA, if you will. And some people hear the language and some people see the characters. I happen to sort of feel the journey of the play and the turning point, and it's always been that way for me. I don't know why. I don't know why. It's amazing to be on the inside of that and watch it. Oh, well, that's good. It's true. (laughs) That's good. We tried a lot of things that... But always within this, we never, I don't think we we ever... We didn't question the the structure. structure ever. No, we didn't. We didn't, which was really great. I mean, because if I had said to you, yeah, I want to do it, but no trial, what would have been your response? Fine. Really? Yes. I was ready to go anywhere you wanted to go. Oh, wow. Well, that's good to know now. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, for those out there who are looking for a new play to write, we just want to say the trial is a really interesting (laughs) moment in time, and it's got a heck of a transcript. So if anybody wants to do this as a kind of companion piece, this would be the time to do it. By the way, there is something about this story. I think I told you this. I was doing a talk at the Beinecke about our production at Yale. And the Beinecke, of course, is the library that houses the trial transcript, all of the letters of Harry Weinberger, who was the producer of the Broadway show that uh, was deemed obscene, uh, and Shola Mosh. So I was giving this talk about you and your discovery of the transcript and your work and then how you and I started. And in the audience, there was a senior. And this was like early in her senior year. And this look came over her face. Just this interesting look. And she came up afterwards. I could tell something was happening Mm -hmm. as she listened. And she said, I'm supposed to choose a senior thesis, and I chose this thesis, but it doesn't engage me as much. Where could I find the trial transcript? <laughs> and I said, lady, you walk across the hall. <laughs> I introduced her to the curator. Wow. And I said, you're in the building where the trial transcript is. So was she, she a writer? She was in American Studies. Hmm. Um, oh, she wrote me back within huh. a week. She'd changed her thesis. And she had happily ensconced herself mm. in all the materials that you as wow. a young artist had wow. gone through. Um, That's incredible. So there's something about this story. It's infectious in a yeah. strange way, I think. And that so much of it is retained. Yeah. I don't know if infectious is the right word. It's... Addictive? <laughs> Are there positive words for obsession Really positive, joyful words for Mm. obsession. Whatever that word is, I think that's what this story is. And crazy-making, too. Yeah, yeah, crazy-making, too. You know, I think in a way that you and I are at pivotal moments in our work, in our our 
lifetimes as artists. Mm-hmm. And there comes a moment where, for me, in a strange way, I'm tired of sitting down at my computer mm-hmm. alone with my voice. I want to write something with a much larger canvas with other artists. So, and I feel that we get to this point where we're saying yes to projects, but we're saying yes for all the right reasons, but that's different than saying yes to a collaboration. Mm -hmm. Um, That there gets a point in time where you start to realize, I only want to do work that expands my notion of the possible. Mm -hmm. Right? And who will expand my notion of the possible? So you start to really think about projects as much for the artists that you get to be in the room with. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it was just that you asked at that moment in time where I had other projects in my head and I was proposing them. I actually had said yes to a commission at Yale. Right. Of these other projects. But I didn't feel excited about the collaboration to the same extent as when you called me to ask if I would do this. Um, So at that point, I had already seen many of your works. Um, And certainly, I mean, Sarah Rule is such uh, a passionate advocate, Mm -hmm. as you know, of being in the room with you. Um, So it was just that time where I was shifting. I'm not as interested in the solitude. Um, and I'm more interested in being in the room and creating in the room. So I don't know if you feel that as well, that you're starting to... It's interesting. It's in some way, it's like a very different kind of inflection point, but it's true that I'm... It's the freelance directing mm, eventually has a sort of emptiness to it. You know, not... Not in the moment, not in the exact experience, but in the fullness of time or in looking back. Right. And there is a longing that this has been my first experience of really sating, of dreaming of, you know, a story that I so deeply care about and figuring out with a wonderful collaborator how to tell it. Right. And doing that from the inception, it's it's a different relationship to a pe- to a piece of theater than I've ever had. It's it's also I think it's interesting. I think we keep bumping into the original process of making theater. In the American theater, we have three weeks mm-hmm. and a product in three weeks to make, and then it's over. And so we're almost itinerant farmers, going from theater to theater. And here's the crop, and you harvest the crop, and it's a quick turnaround, and then you go to another project. Yeah. Versus this mm-hmm. ability to really yeah. discuss and examine, yeah. we want to be members of companies. We want to have artists as companies. Yeah. It all goes back to the model of you know Shakespeare and the Elizabethan theater, and the you know French theater that. We are, we have this very long gestation period. Mm -hmm. And the process itself gestates something that may not even be in our mind, but you start working together and you go, this would be the perfect choreographer for this. Or I have a piece that I want to play with you again. What kind of piece could we create that continues the process mm-hmm. we've had and actually is written 
Because I feel like, I, for me anyway, I'm a different artist now than I was five yeah, years ago. I definitely ago. am. So what, what kind of scope would we mm-hmm. look for? And the other thing that's been really extraordinary, which I think a lot of people may not realize, is that for me at any rate, I think for you too, this is the first time I've worked with cast members in three productions mm-hmm. over yep. a year. And some of the members of this company have worked with us in readings and workshops. So we've even had more than a year. And the luxury of that in a system where it's three weeks, bye-bye, um, is extraordinary. So we, we were talking right before we started this of saying, boy, this is going to be a really bad postpartum <laughs> on this one. It's going to be bad, right? <laughs> I was backstage two days ago asking, what's our next play, All of Us Together? You know, we were Any ideas? God of Vengeance was what came up. We should do God of we Vengeance. Do God of Vengeance. We, I mean, we have the company. All we have to do is make it fit our company. Yeah, we should. We should We do really it. should. Yeah, we should. <laughs> I mean, look, how, how improbable is it anyway that we're going to get three theater companies to say, yes, we're going to do uh, a, basically a 10-cast play, right? Right. That's, that's totally ensemble. Right. So, I mean, the notion of doing an ensemble play in the 21st century is improbable enough. Am I wrong about that? But sadly, no. <sighs> I think you're right about that. I. It is truly unique. The for me, I've never had the opportunity to work on the same piece and different this many iterations and over, like because there was real downtime over an expanse of time where there's like real growth for every individual working on it in different ways. I'm going to miss everybody. <laughs> I'm going to miss everybody <laughs> too. I mean, yeah. and it is, it's a different, you know, you just, it creates a different atmosphere when you know each other that well. And that you can't fake. Yeah. It only comes in the richness of time. And it would be interesting if we could go and see the production at Yale now. I wonder, you know, it's vague in my memory, and it's been in some ways replaced by the present moment. But to think if that had been the singular life of the piece versus now. now, It wouldn't do the same thing. I don't think it would have. We needed those three productions. Yeah. Here's the other thing that I really feel like I'm, I'm kind of a bad influence possibly on you as an artist oh, no. because I, as an older older artist here here are the things that I want at this period in my life I want a comfortable mattress <laughs> so the housing is very important to me, right um, I want to work in beautiful settings it's very very important it doesn't have to be 24 7 it has to be dream time mm-hmm. that we as artists are struggling and working in black box theaters in the dark for nine to ten months of the year, not going outside, not seeing nature, always kind of in a a chaotic disarray. Mm -hmm. You know, (laughs) you can can smell uh, the meals of the former cast (laughs) in the building, you know, as you move in and... Just that accumulated detritus. And so I think it's really important that everybody break bread together, that we all um, have have meals together, mm-hmm. that we have even 24 hours of, of a retreat somewhere beautiful. Yeah. And I think that this is the only way that we don't burn out. 
Um, because I don't think people understand the sensory deprivation. It's ironic. The sensory deprivation um, that comes of a life of being in the theater when we're producing beautiful things on stage, but we're actually crammed into these dark black Mm. box spaces. Um, So more and more now I'm like, okay, let's do this. Let's see if we can get into an artist colony then you said, oh, let's do this. We can go to my parents' house. And then I said, oh, let's do this. You can come up to Providence. I, I don't live too far from a beach. And then it was, let's, let's do this and go to the Cape. Right? I think at some point we tried to elongate the development process so we could keep having retreats. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I remember our first development process, I, I had to sort of talk us into McDowell, um, I think both of us, because they were like, you're doing What? But that's not that's not literature. I'm like, no, it is. You're doing what? Well, we're going to sit in the cabin and we're going to toss around ideas and we're going to have dueling computers and we're going to come up with a draft. That first uh, beautiful, McDowell Colony is beautiful. Yeah. Um, but us going back and forth to the lodge and the cottage, <laughs> what I remembered was how much you love to swim. That's when I discovered that you're like a daily swimmer. And I remembered, I, I can barely swim. I remembered that my obligation <laughs> was being kind of a guard with you in your swimsuit with all of these lonely men in Peterborough, New Hampshire, who hadn't seen, only fresh faces, hadn't seen a fresh-faced woman in a while. <laughs> and I was very happy that I... I was there with my arms crossed <laughs> in this freshwater swimming pond, just <laughs> ready, ready oh to God. crack some heads. But I think every place that we've worked since then, you've been able to swim. Thank God. It is rare. Somehow, somehow in our field, I don't know exactly why, but the value of downtime of delight of like delicious food and breathing good air is undervalued i mean and it's it's like a culture of poverty in a way a yeah. culture of fear yeah of abnegation yeah and you i don't know i would like to believe it's a gift to me that to realize how to understand and experience how how deeply important it is to the creative process to also live well. Yes. I mean, so I th- I see it as a gift to to meet it. I think I need to keep walking along your side. It's the only problem. <laughs> One thing probably most people who haven't worked with you don't know yeah. is that Paula brings, I mean, I would say three times a week to rehearsal, like a feast beyond imagining to the company. It gives me shivers just to say it. And consistently throughout every step of this process. And it makes a family of the group in a way that nothing else can. And everybody eats together and feels cherished and taken care of. If there are allergies in the group, Paula finds them out and finds out people's favorite foods and they arrive the next day. It's quite extraordinary and truly truly singular it, it, it is makes me and so it speaks happy. to and it's in indecent it speaks to your love of the artists that you work with it makes me so happy it's also how i got into trouble with two different school administrations uh both at brown 
and at Yale, not in trouble, but just that I think it's very important for young artists as they're meeting and starting to work on each other's plays that they have a beach they can walk on, mm-hmm. that they have wine. It doesn't have to be expensive wine. The cheapest bottle of wine shared with young artists becomes worth more in 20 years than the most expensive bottle of wine that pleasure could provide. And I think it's important. I think that living well, um, we don't have to live expensively Mm -hmm. to live well. We have to share to live well. So, uh, you know, that joy of, of feeding the playwrights and the directors who came to work has just stayed with me, and it makes me so happy. Well, it's a it's builds a company in a way that is truly singular that I've not experienced before. It's um, like you said to break bread. There's something about it. There's something about breaking bread together. Also, it enables people in a break to not desperately run out. <laughs> It's so funny. I just remembered when I did the People versus God of Vengeance. So 1997, right? And we were about to do the show. My mother was there. This wonderful actress, Alicia Roper, had like her two-day-old peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You know, half of it was left, and my mother just saw her eating. That was her lunch, and she was so sad for Alicia Roper. How could we not be feeding you like a, you know, a salad or something at least that was made on this very day? Right. But I, I somehow it's a we're so we're so hectic to like make a living to survive to create meaning and we lose perspective. Yeah, I don't think people really understand who watch the shows that what we're asking of actors is that they leave their family and go on the road. Mm -hmm. And that separation itself is so hard, particularly when you have children or people leave their dogs because they can't take the dogs or people leave their spouses or people leave their parents. So there is that. But I also think people don't understand what artist housing might be like because the truth of the matter is very few theaters have the income and the sources Mm -hmm. to provide comfortable spaces. So we're talking about artists. You were on the road, you know, for most of last year. Yeah, I was. So, I mean, there's there's a certain kind of... Uh, And it is, it's a sacrifice Mm -hmm. that people make to be artists, that I feel if more people saw um, those sacrifices, if more people understood the stress and the strain on the body, Mm -hmm. um, hopefully people would start to think, gee, maybe, I mean, I keep playing Powerball because if I ever win, I'm starting a foundation. And one of the grants is going to be to artist housing. Mm. Seriously, because... We're not going to mention the theaters that you and I shared artist <laughs> housing in, but it was it was rough, and it wasn't on this project. So th- let me just say that very hurriedly. It was not on this project. So uh, let's uh, let's schmooze a little bit right now about why is this production different from all the others? Um, <laughs> and every production has been a gift. Uh, every production from New Haven and Yale to La Jolla. Um, has brought what this play is forward. What's different about doing it here in New York at the Vineyard? Well, I think so many things. But first of all, the New Haven process was (laughs) (laughs) panic-driven. I mean, that's really true. It is true. So, and like, 
just learning the music, the volume of learning that had to happen in that room, not only for the actors, but for us, for David, the choreographer, for the composers. You know, we started it with no music written. Right. So we had to open something right. a month later. Right. And it was, you know, it was flop sweat. I mean, really It intense, was really flop sweat. Intense creation very, very quickly. Yeah. And there was no real bandwidth to do for the company, as a company, to do any kind of deep research or deep questioning. We just had to kind of right. see what we had and right. throw it up there. Right. And then I think it was a, in a conversation with you, with where, and you had the idea that one of the gifts of bringing the company here was this opportunity to really shift the process right. to being a really deep immersion in the culture that surrounded that surrounds our story it was kind of revolutionary to me because i'm always tasked with working very very quickly and and usually driven by panic right we're so, always driven by panic always driven by panic without panic there would be no play <laughs> But true. it seemed like a genuinely, a, it was a revelatory idea that to take a company that knew the very deeply the worlds, many, many multiple worlds of indecent, and get to know those worlds in a deeper and more intimate, more experiential way. And, and both of us knew, I think, that it would have some chemical resonance or change on the right. product, right. but we didn't know what it would be. Right. And it seemed like this very wonderfully exciting way to deepen the piece. I think it has. I think so too. So so what, one of the things we're talking about, and again, this sort of goes back to my pleasure principle mm -hmm. of theater, was the envisioning that w we could take a ferry to Ellis Island mm -hmm. and go through Ellis Island together. We could go to the Jewish Museum. We could go to temple emmanuel for a friday night service together that we would be walking the streets here yeah. where the yiddish theater thrived where all of the characters in our play had walked and acted and lived um which is just i think a sensory gift mm -hmm. to let it soak into our bodies and recognize that we're we're presenting this in new york that people who may be, everyone who's coming through the door, most likely, have had parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, who came here and spent time on Ellis Island to get to the shores of Manhattan. Um, that there are people here whose grandparents spoke Yiddish, they speak Yiddish. I mean, just a, a, a total different submersion for mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. And then to discover as we were working on this amazing exhibit at the uh, Museum of the City of New York, to have the curator say, oh, by the way, the Vineyard Theater, it's built on the actual bricks of the Irving Place Theater, which housed Yiddish theater. Mm -hmm. We're actually, there was something that felt so right at the beginning, was it last season or the beginning of this season? We met with Sarah... Mm -hmm. Stern and Doug Abel mm -hmm. to talk about indecent and we stood in the theater in the mm -hmm. empty space <laughs> and we could feel something yeah so to find out that we're actually producing this on the bones of a Yiddish theater company I think is extraordinary yeah it feels also if you well it feels like like the piece is coming home yes in a way 
And if you really think about, which I hadn't until right now, that it was here that the play was shut down. Right. It was in this city that that dream was dismantled. Yeah. And to be reviving the dream now in the same place is quite something. It really is. I don't want to say vengeance. I want to say a sense of justice from the grave. Mm-hmm. And it's like a hundred, it's basically a hundred years later. A hundred years later. Yeah, that's right. That feels pretty wonderful. <laughs> that does feel pretty wonderful. Anyway, New York has been, I think, just an extraordinary place uh, to bring this and to bring it to the vineyard. Yeah, and the resource, I mean, also we had a lot of, Wonderful people just come talk to us in the rehearsal room. Yiddish speakers, people who had have spent their lives making Yiddish theater, just enormous access to a huge culture that, that is very vibrant here. And the time and the bandwidth that can only come from it being a third process with the same company to have That's space. Right. right. There is one thing we did at La Jolla that I realized we had to take out, but... It was a moment I loved, which is when I asked everyone in the cast mm. to give us the names of their ancestors who emigrated. Um, so it could be their great-great-grandmother's first name and the great-great-grandfather's last name or whatever they wanted, just a name that we had projected on the wall. And I loved seeing them standing in that line yeah. with the name of their ancestors. In truth... That is what they bring on stage with them. Mm-hmm. They are bringing their ancestors on stage mm. in this piece in a way that I feel resonates. Mm-hmm. And we're talking to our ancestors Oh yeah, all the time as we're working on this, don't you think? Yeah. Well, and you're talking to mine. Yes, I'm talking <laughs> to your ancestors, which is interesting. <laughs> I, I really like your ancestors. I really like yours. Oh, good. It's good. <laughs> Well, that's it for Theater Uncorked at the Vineyard. My deepest appreciation to Paula Vogel and Rebecca Tashman for joining us on the podcast. Theater Uncorked at the Vineyard is produced and edited by me, Eric Pargotch, Vineyard Theater's Director of Communications and New Media. With help from Melissa Pelkey, our Marketing Director, and Ali Scott Bennett, the Vineyard's Associate Producer. Our theme song is by the amazing Peter Lerman. Thanks to the Vineyard's Artistic Directors, Douglas Abel and Sarah Stern, Executive Producer Jennifer Garvey-Blackwell, and the entire Vineyard staff. If you enjoyed this episode, do us a favor and rate and review us on iTunes. It helps spread the word. Thank you for listening to Theater Uncorked at the Vineyard. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.